Hello. Welcome back to another episode of... Who knew? Who knew? Yes. Do you... How are you? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> good. Good. How was your day? It was a good day. How was yours? Okay, it was good. Nice. Yeah. Sick. How's, uh, how's work been? It's been good. It's... Yeah, I don't think we told anybody that I uh, came back to dispatch. Yeah. Yeah. It's been good, though. It has been good. I think that I needed the time away and the perspective to realize that it's something that I love doing, regardless of how frustrated it makes me. I just need to learn how to put up with those frustrations better. Glad you, uh, I don't know, learned about yourself. Yes. I'm challenging myself now every day that if I get ready for work, it's going to be a good day. So (laughs) if I don't get ready for work, like doing my makeup and hair and stuff, it'll be a bad day. So got to make sure to do... Those things. <laughs> things black and white, right? What's black and white? That. Oh, yeah. There's that no in between. It's either good or bad. <laughs> cool. Yes. Do you have anything podcast related? I do. So I posted this on the Instagram, and if you guys haven't seen it, you should go check it out. Who knew podcast? Um, we. I was going over the photos that we had for our overnight investigation of the Abbey, and there's one series of photos that we have in the um hallway on like the think like the second or third floor and you can see a doorway and basically in the doorway you can see a doorway of like a french door so you can see like the glass and the panes and then like it's kind of out of focus a couple of pictures but then right of like second to last photo you can see like a figure standing in front of the door it's like not see-through it's definitely blocking like the door frame so I thought that was pretty cool. You have to have your brightness up to see it very well, but check it out. We got a ghost photo. I think that's like our first one. Yeah. It's super fun. Like a legitimate. Yeah. And I had like gone through no the photos shit. before and I didn't even think anything of it. And then I was like laying in bed at like four in the morning. And of course, that's when your screen's too bright. Mm-hmm. And I saw it and I was like, wait a second. <laughs> Hold on. Hold on. I literally got out of bed. I was like so hyped from it. <laughs> but that's where all was, I had to do. Where was I? You were sleeping. Oh. Because it was four in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> nice yes cool that's all that's all i had good job thanks they're very cool I, 10 out of 10 go check them out yes so. um i don't have anything podcast related besides this episode so nice let's just get into it let's do it um so this story is relatively local to us in what? colorado um, and I found a very, very, very good uh, interpretation of it on Murderpedia.com. Interesting. And I didn't want to change it that much, so I just wanted to give credit where it is due and know that uh, this is mostly not my own like writing of it. It is pretty much straight from Murderpedia because this was a very good telling of this story. Do you want to know something funny? Hmm. Like, I would say... Mm... 40% of my information is from Murderpedia, and I, like, hardly ever use them. I love them. Outstanding. Mm-hmm. Great resource. So, uh, let's get to it, yeah? Let's get to it. So, we're going back to August 1st of 1937. Uh, doctors at Memorial Hospital in Colorado Springs, Colorado, Ooh. contacted the police department regarding a sudden and mysterious death of a patient of theirs. Interesting. Victim was 67-year-old George Obendorfer, and he had uh, basically fallen 
and nobody really knew why he fell. Um, nope, that's wrong. He fell ill. <laughs> <laughs> he fell on the ground. No I'm one knows why. Start, He's dead. Again. The victim was 67-year-old George Obendorfer, and he got sick uh, pretty unexplainably just a few days earlier. And doctors were not able to figure out, like, what made him sick. And they tried what they could, but he ended up succumbing to the sickness. Mm. Um, they interviewed staff members at the hospital. Investigators uh, discovered Obendorfer had been visiting the area. He wasn't from there. And his primary residence was actually in Cincinnati, Ohio. Interesting. And apparently, uh, he, along with two other uh, unknown friends checked into the Park Hotel in Colorado Springs on July 30th of 1937. Mm-hmm. Colorado authorities uh, found the circumstances interesting because the owner of that hotel had just filed a report regarding uh, stolen diamonds, which seems fake because that shit never happens anymore. It but happened like in, it the would 30s. in the 30s. Yeah. Uh, they reported $300 worth of stolen diamonds. So these two like incidents happen pretty like close together Mm -hmm. so um that generally gets taken into account by investigators like huh here's one weird crime and then another weird possible crime so yes worth noting that uh shortly after getting to the park hotel investigators learned that obendorfer had registered there with a woman named anna marie hahn and her young son oscar Mm -hmm. according to the hotel owner miss hahn uh, let him know that she lived also in Cincinnati, Ohio, and was in Colorado on vacation. Uh, they checked the room, and they couldn't find any clues or any anything like that, and Mrs. Hahn and her son were nowhere to be found. They tried to figure out whether the jewels, the diamonds, and Mr. Obendorfer's premature death were related, uh, so they started visiting local pawn shops in hopes that they would find uh, that somebody had tried to sell the diamonds there. Not long before, um, nope, I take that out. I don't know why that sense is in there. So one of the local pawn shop owners let them know that a woman who was accompanied by a young boy had tried to pawn some similar diamonds off there, but the owner decided not to purchase them. His description of the woman matched the hotel owner's description of Anna Hahn. Mm-hmm. Colorado police broadened their search for her. They kind of zeroed in on her. And they learned that a woman fitting her description tried to withdraw $1,000 from a Denver bank using a Cincinnati bank book. I don't know what that is, but... Like a checking book, maybe? 1930-ish. Yeah, Yeah. probably. A Cincinnati bank book in the name of a George Obendorfer. I don't know why I'm saying everything so fucking weird. It sounds sounds fine. No. No? No. Okay. Um... In the name of George Obendorfer. Even though she claimed to be Mrs. George Obendorfer, the bank manager kind of got the heebie-jeebies from that, and he would not make the transaction. So detectives at this point were convinced that she, uh, this was not a Mrs. Obendorfer, and it was actually Anna Hahn. So according to the Cincinnati Crime Book, uh, which is a book by George Stimson, Investigators wasted uh, not a lot of time securing an arrest warrant for Han uh, for suspicion of grand larceny. So that was like for the $10,000. But in real life, they were like, I think she's probably uh, part of this whole weird death thing that happened. Yes, yes. Uh, They suspected that she fled the area, went back to Ohio, 
and they end up contacting Cincinnati authorities for help. And it was soon learned that Han had returned home, and Cincinnati investigators were able to pick her up. And when she was asked by Colorado investigators what she knew about George Obendorfer's death, Anna responded, quote, The man is a perfect stranger to me. Hmm. However, uh, they were like, heads up, uh, you signed the hotel registry book for him and her and her son, and we know you were staying there with him. So she's like, oh, wait, that's right. Actually, I was staying in that room with him. Oh, <laughs> actually, says, now that you reminded uh-huh, me. She says, um, I met him on the train from Denver. He was a Swiss. She said, quote, a Swiss. Um, I felt sorry for him, and I was trying to help him. So all of these detectives are like, this is weird. You're both from Cincinnati. We know this. You both end up in Colorado Springs in the same hotel room. Like, just hinky shit going on, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, detectives got lucky because several of George's relatives lived in the area and were able to give a little more information on what was going on because this was, at this point, just weird, right? Yeah. So they do some interviews with the family, and the detectives learned that George had immigrated to Ohio from Russia uh, some years earlier, and he was a retired shoemaker. He had three kiddos, and he had recently separated from his wife. Family members were also shocked that he had died, stating that he was, you know, he had never been in bad health. Like, it was just weird, right? Yeah. Nevertheless, uh, more telling was uh, one family member's revelation that Anna had in fact known George and the two had been dating prior to coming to Colorado Springs. Perfectly well-known stranger, some might say. Right. Uh, This trip, according to that relative, was Anna's idea, and George had gone along under the premise that they were going to visit a ranch that she supposedly owned in Colorado Springs. A ranch so, in Colorado Springs? I guess. That doesn't um, seem like a place. Oh, they have stuff like that. In Springs? Yeah. I guess all I'm picturing is like the city. That's the thing. Cities are generally um, <laughs> surrounded by not Like cities. agriculture to right. bring the... Okay, yes. okay. Um, so detectives have all this new info and they tell Anna, like, here... Like, th- what the fuck? Um, so she admits to detectives that Turns out she did definitely know George. Mm-hmm. She claimed to have met him weeks before in a local shoe shop. So that's like lie number three, right? Like, oh, I don't know him. And then, oh, wait, I met him on the train. And right. wait a minute, I met him weeks before we even came. Yeah, out. actually, I'm sorry. I forgot. I couldn't remember. Was it this? That right. That's the one you're talking about? Oh, okay. So at this point, she denies that they were in any kind of like relationship. Instead, she said she goes back to her original story and claimed it was like this weird chance encounter that she met George on the train mm-hmm. and they were coincidentally going on vacation to the exact same place. Mm. According to her, she and George got along well during the trip and ultimately decided to share a room once they got to there to Colorado Springs. Um, shortly after they got there, got to the hotel, George got sick and uh, went to the hospital and Anna claimed to have had no further contact with him after that, obviously because he died. Um, <laughs> investigators continue to doubt what she was saying because she was just lying and lying and lying. So they look more into her background, hoping to get some more answers. So let's go back with them to her earliers. So 
they found out that Anna was a German native. She was born in 1906 and had immigrated to Cincinnati in 1929 when she was 23. Mm-hmm. Before she came to the U.S., she had married a doctor from Vienna, and they had a kid that their kiddo, Oscar, that I mentioned before. Uh, not long after she gave birth to Oscar, they all immigrated together, but the doctor, her husband, died shortly after they got to the States. Okay. Take that as you will. Both the Cincinnati Post and the Cincinnati Inquirer uh, got their hands on several transcripts of Anna's police interviews, which uh, they ended up both publishing several times before, uh, like, before anything really happened, but during the course of the entire investigation. So, true crime was uh, popping back then, too. Yes. According to those accounts, Anna had an an uncle and an aunt in Cincinnati's German district, uh, so she decided to stay in the country and make a new start there, uh, or here. During a (laughs) During a community dance at the Hotel Alms, Anna met a telegraph operator named Phil Hahn. Uh, they fell in love. They got married. Phil desperately oh, no. wanted to leave his job so that um, he just wasn't into it. So they saved all of their money that they could. Eventually end up uh, opening two. Uh, back then they used to call them delicatessens, but it's like a uh, like a small grocery store. Okay. Kind of like a... Um, like a quick stop or something? Yeah, kind of like that, but like with, a, with like deli meat and shit. Oh, interesting. Uh, shortly after that, Anna's aunt and uncle died and left their house uh, to her and her husband, which is pretty cool. Hope that happens to us someday. <laughs> take that out. <laughs> oh uh, investigators soon learned that uh, while her marriage to Philip or Phil might have seemed pretty solid to outsiders. They had their share of problems, most of which seemed to revolve around her constantly wanting more and more and more and more money. Oh, I thought it was going to be her about, like, trying to constantly kill him. For money. Um, So (laughs) Anna seemed to get tired pretty quickly of her duties operating one one of the delicatessens that they owned. She ended up uh, choosing to work on various money-making schemes. Arson was apparently her first choice. Oh my god. And there were three suspicious fires on the books that were linked to her. One of which, uh, the first of which occurred at one of their businesses. Um, And while that fire caused minimal damage, she still managed to collect 300 bucks from the insurance company. That's it? Back in the 30s was a little bit more than it is now. Well, I mean, either way, it doesn't seem like that was worth it. Minimal damage. So, uh, the other two fires took place at their house. The first on June 2nd of 1935, and the second was on May 20th of 1936. And she got just over two grand for both of those from insurance. Hmm. So, um, along with arson, she also... Uh, might have started killing various husbands of hers. Um, <laughs> whether that was by accident or if oh, she meant to. On two separate occasions, she tried to secure a $25,000 life insurance policy on her husband, but each time she, uh, he wasn't into it. Uh, no shit. <laughs> so I don't know if he was like, this is weird, or he's like, this is like, I don't like mortality, whatever it was. He wasn't into it. Um, however, 
She uh, killed him anyways. Shortly after, he became extremely ill and against her wishes was taken to the hospital by his mom. And although he <sighs> ends up surviving this time, uh, oh, no. the marriage continued to suffer and they eventually separated. And after that, um, despite her lack of training or experience in the field, she started working as a visiting nurse for elderly patients. This uh, might have been the revelation that made detectives decide to follow up with a lot of her previous patients, which was a good idea on their part. Uh, so they end up finding out uh, that a separate case, which was a mysterious death of a 78-year-old Jacob Wagner, also had ties to Anna Hahn. Uh, whether it was an accident or whatever, Anna ends up telling the detectives that she had been caring for him, while working as a visiting nurse, uh, he was a German native and a retired gardener and had mysteriously died two months earlier. And in his final will, he left his entire state to Anna Hahn. Jesus. So, coroner's report listed heart disease as the cause of death. However, a friend who was a little bit suspicious of that badgered the police to investigate a little bit further and they exhumed his body. And <laughs> they do another autopsy. Um, investigators start putting together pieces, and they decide to visit uh, Wagner's neighborhood, and they find out that Anna had approached him and claimed to have been a long-lost niece. Interesting. Uh, he knew that he had no living relatives and was like, that's bullshit, uh, but soon ends up letting her help him with his day-to-day -day stuff. So I don't know why, I don't know what she would have said to him, but he ends up letting her in. Uh, neighbors also claim that Anna spent several hours in his apartment after his death. Naturally. Uh, detectives end up meeting um, an, like an older like neighbor of his. Uh, her name was Olive Kaler. Um, Olive Juice. Olive Juice. And she lived in the same apartment building, and they learned that Anna had befriended her on at least two occasions, brought her ice cream cones. So maybe that was her next uh, target. But um, after she ate the second ice cream cone, Miss Kaler became violently ill and went to the hospital. As most do after eating ice cream. Here's like, my thing. Is like, why would she even, is real. Like, why would she even go for her? She hasn't, like, put in place any monetary anything. Like, is she just killing to kill or what? Maybe she saw her as a threat. Yeah, I, that, maybe. So, um, police almost immediately became suspicious of this one because, um, obviously, not known whether Mrs. Kaler herself ever connected the ice cream cone with her getting sick. Regardless, uh, as she was staying in the hospital, somebody did, in fact, steal a bag from her, uh, from her house, which contained an unknown amount of cash and jewelry. Hmm. Never officially connected, but if I am no detective... But You're that right. seems suspicious. <laughs> so it didn't take long for detectives to um, basically all of their little leads here and there with different old people who were like getting sick and dying and leaving all their shit to Anna. Uh, that information got out to the media, per use, uh, and they immediately published several stories about Anna Hahn possibly poisoning elderly patients. <laughs> Can you imagine if, like, in the middle of an investigation, that shit came out? That's just, like, the nail in the coffin. Yeah, right? Um, 
most of the initial reports were exaggerated, full of errors, uh, and didn't really, they, like, they weren't good, but they did give police some leads. Um, one of those came from a 62-year-old George Heiss, and according to him, he had met on Anaheim a year earlier, and while the two of them were friends, um, he claimed that after a little while, he became suspicious of her because he became violently ill after drinking a mug of beer that she poured for him. Okay. Um, he never felt like he was, like, in good health. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that time, he didn't connect it to her, but after seeing all these other reports, he's like, oh, shit, that happened to me, and I knew her, and A plus B equals C, you know? Right. Um, investigators were starting to fear that she was, I mean, they they were aware that there were these connections, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they were trying to put everything together, and they learned of yet another mysterious death oh in which God. Anna was acquainted with the victim. She's a psycho. So we have another investigation, and this was on July 6th of 1937, which was just a few weeks before her trip to Colorado. Another one of her quote-unquote patients, not a real nurse, um... <laughs> 67-year-old George uh, Xelman, it's G-S-E-L-L-M-A-N. Interesting. Xelman uh, died in his room at 1717 Elm Street. Uh, friends of his told authorities that he had become suddenly ill after his last visit with Anna and died shortly after that. Um, investigators worked pretty quick to secure an order for his body to be exhumed and autopsied. That was immediately granted because of the circumstances. Yeah. Uh, according to a book called Hunting Humans by Michael Newton, the coroner's preliminary exum- ex- examination of George Xelman uh, basically found that he had a metallic poison in his body. Mercury. Substance was initially thought to be arsenic, but upon conducting further tests, it was found to be Croton oil, which Dang is it. a general household remedy that was uh, used way back when and is definitely not used now. Uh, that is not <laughs> generally fatal in small doses, but a large dose could kill pretty much anybody. Nice. Um, the Stedman's Medical Dictionary states that the, this drug could cause, quote, an intense burning pain in the mouth, throat, and abdomen, excessive salivation, vomiting, and diarrhea with tenseness and Passage of blood. I don't know what that means. Does it mean you're pooping blood? Probably. That's what that means to me. Yeah. Ew. Uh, so it's bad. And it's like not a good death. Mm-hmm. Investigators work to get more evidence and Philippon ends up coming forward and gave them a half ounce bottle of croton oil that he had taken away from his wife when the two of them lived together. Fucking kill me, dude. Are you kidding me? She is not doing very well <laughs> at like covering her tracks. Right. Uh, yeah, so because of her Colorado, so she had a warrant from Colorado, right, mm-hmm. way back when, uh, she had that, and she continued to be detained by Cincinnati authorities because of that, uh, That's Colorado, um, might have wanted to arrest her for theft and que- to question her about open door for the first guy's mm-hmm. untimely death, but Ohio was like, uh, we have our own case, and we're just gonna keep her here, so we're not, like, we recognize your warrant, uh, and you can come deal with that if you want to, but we're keeping her because she's also killed all these other people. Yeah, here. and it's like majority here. Right. 
Um, so during a search of her home, mm-hmm. the detectives found a promissory note for $2,000, which was money that she had apparently borrowed from somebody named Albert Palmer. And during a follow-up investigation on that, they found out that Albert Palmer was a 72-year-old resident uh, whom she also uh, had connections with, obviously. Um, They went to his house, and they found out that he had died after having been ill for an extended period of time. And poisoned. And it was revealed that Anna Hahn had been caring for the man before his death. Wow. In addition, relatives of his informed the detectives that at least $4,000 was missing from his estate. Dang. Ohio authorities were getting more than they expected to. They're like, oh, no, 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 no. We thought we were just dealing with like a couple murders. Now she's insane. Right. So they're getting all this other information while they're still waiting for the like results of the first guy, Jacob Wagner's Mm -hmm. autopsy. Um he had no croton oil in his system, but they found that he had a ton of arsenic. So, Jesus. Maybe she's moving on. I don't know. She's so dumb. So, detectives bring in her son, Oscar, in hopes that he might uh, have some more information. He was pretty young, so he didn't know anything about, like, his mom's work or anything like that, but he told... The police, contrary to his mom's statements, that he uh, they had met George, first guy that I talked about, the Colorado Springs guy, by mm-hmm. chance at the train station, and she had in fact purchased his ticket at Union Terminal in Cincinnati. And Oscar let them know that his mom had served him several drinks on the train, and he was feeling ill, like before they even got to Colorado. Okay. So they won, and, uh, like, she's supposed to be extradited to Colorado on this warrant, but they're trying to bide time. Um, Ohio authorities end up arresting her on August 10th of 1937 and charging her with the murder of Jacob Wagner. Um, Hamilton County prosecutors uh, end up being the ones who are, like, presenting the whole case, and for her defense, she was granted two attorneys— Anna's trial began on October 11th of 1937. From the start, the prosecutors insisted that Anna had killed Jacob out of greed, pointing out that his money and his estate was the motive. They ended up having a bunch of witnesses come forth, uh, starting with hospital employees who recounted Wagner's last days, which were bad, um, which is no surprise considering like what we talked about with the different kinds of poisons and all that good stuff. Yeah. Uh, according to the Cincinnati Inquirer, a chemist testified that the victim had enough arsenic in him to, quote, kill four men. A handwriting expert was then called forward to, and told the court that Wagner's will was a forgery and the handwriting was identical to Anna Hans. Um, and the judge ends up in a weird move for a judge, uh, allowing the state to introduce evidence related to the other poisoning cases that were not technically a part of this one. Um, in order to show, like, a pattern of homicidal behavior. George Heiss, presumably the only surviving victim, was also card- called forward to discuss, uh, his uh, interactions with Han, or Anna, and his subsequent illness, and... The state's case, uh, like, as it wound down, they presented the court with several exhibits, uh, which is, like, evidence, uh, which oddly enough included Jacob Wagner and Albert Palmer's internal organs. Hmm. 
which is gross. Yes. I can't imagine seeing that in court. No, that's repulsive. Monday, November 1st, the defense started its presentation, and they didn't have a lot to, like, refute what the state was saying. Uh, so they end up putting Anna on the stand. She just denies doing anything wrong. And uh, literally all they had was her saying, like, well, I didn't do any of this. Um Okay, that this, obviously makes you not guilty. Right, and it didn't really matter because of how much evidence the state had. Um, so the defense ends up holding their cards for closing arguments and rested their case on November 4th of 1937. Um, following the prosecution's closing arguments, defense attorney Joseph H. Houdin stands up for the defense uh, and addressed the jury and said, quote, I will not say that a single witness lied, but this case has had such widespread publicity that it would have been impossible for these witnesses not to have any kind of preconceived ideas before they ever came into the courtroom. Particularly, this is true of the witnesses from Wagner's neighborhood, where the case has been the chief topic of conversation for months. Although mm. she is no angel... She's not guilty of murder and not the murder of Jacob Wagner. Oh, uh, well. So that was basically what he had. And it ends up only taking two hours for the jury to return their verdict. Uh, and she was uh, she guilty. Obviously. What they, yeah. So following that verdict, each jury member was polled and each one affirmed his or her vote. They don't do that anymore. Um so she ends up going back to her jail cell, and then on November 10th, she was brought again before the ju- the same judge, um, and the judge, this was basically for her sentencing, the judge asked if she had anything she wanted to say, and she said, quote, uh, I'm innocent, your honor, and he paused and said, that's too fucking bad, <laughs> Yes. That's not what he said. Um, I wouldn't doubt it. So he sentenced her to death. Oh, shit. And she ends up being the first woman in Ohio to be sentenced to death. So, bing, bing, boom, we go through that whole process. Appeals, yada, yada, yada. Uh, December 1st. This definitely did not last as long as it does now. Like, people are on death row for, like, decades now. Decades now. Yeah, no, it definitely did not take as long. Uh, Her attorneys end up keeping the court system busy with appeals and all that good shit. And um, her execution date ends up being set for March 10th. Um, But that date came and went. Her case passed through the Ohio court system several times before taken to the Supreme Court. And they agreed with the state and refused to block her execution. So the next year uh december 6th of 1938 which is still way sooner than that would ever happen now uh the governor made a formal statement in which he refused to interfere with the decision the decision of the courts and later that day uh, it was announced over the radio uh that her execution was scheduled for eight o'clock the next day so she spent much of her time that next day writing four letters which she ends up uh, she ended up handing to her attorneys. I don't know who they were for. Probably her kid and whatever family. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so she has, like, the most dramatic execution or, like, pre-execution I've ever heard of. So they're they're making their way into the death chamber, and she passes out, collapses <laughs> on the floor. They, oh put a, they put smelling salts under her nose, wake her back up, Makes and sense. she... Um, <laughs> 
But she cries, and she's, you know, pleading with everybody and yelling and yada, yada, yada. Clock's ticking down. Uh, in Basically, what they did back then is they would go to the death chamber, and then there was a certain amount of time that you had to spend there just in case the governor changes his mind and is like, I oh, will stay this execution. That didn't happen. She ends up calling her pastor, um, a guy named John Sullivan, to the... He was like the prison chaplain, and they had whatever relationship they had uh, in the short time that she was at that uh, location. Um, and so she calls him to the chamber, and they start to like do what they do, pray and whatever, and they're doing the Lord's Prayer. And halfway through it, they throw the switch on the... <laughs> they're like, okay, we're done. In the chair. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So uh, she ends up being pronounced dead at 8.13 p.m. And the Ohio Historical Society reports that on December 8th, uh, she ends up being buried in an, quote, unsanctified ground at some church cemetery there in Columbus. What does that mean? I don't know. And that's the story of Anna Marie Hunt. She's crazy. She's psycho. That's a lot. Apparently it was all to support a gambling addiction. That's obviously what anybody does. Yeah. It's gam- gambling. Yep. Yep. Chilling people, get their monies, go gamble. It's definitely not greed. Right. Right. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. That was enjoyable. Are you ready to <laughs> talk about something like not quite so fucked up, but still pretty fucked up? Yeah. It's true crime. I don't know what you guys expect. Yeah, let's go. Don't expect anything less. Right. I'm talking about two brothers who are murderers, but like... <laughs> Not, like, together, so they're not, like, killer siblings that are going through, like, menacing. They're, like, one brother, like, went on his spree, and then, like, a decade later, his other brother goes on a spree. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna say, I don't know if they're, I'm saying the name right, but I think it's the Comer brothers, um, were, like, in Southern America. So, we're in Northeast Arkansas. And I just, I'm diving right into it. Just I heads up. I literally meant South America. No, I did not. Real quick, I know I said that earlier that I got a lot of my information from Murderpedia, but like, I would say like 90% of the rest of this is from uh, NewYorkDailyNews.com because everything that I found was just a regurgitated version of that because the story is so old and so yeah. like not very well known. Anyway, so we're back at Northeast Arkansas, and there's 14-year-old Arnold Comer. He runs away from home, like any 14-year-old does, uh, December of 1925. And he goes fucking crazy, because before he runs away, he decides, I'm going to steal my dad's gun. What the fuck? (laughs) So he takes his dad's gun, and with that gun, he commits several robberies to get more guns, like a shotgun, a pistol, and obviously ammunition for those guns as one does and then with all these weapons he stumbles upon i don't know i don't know if it was like on purpose or if he was just like oh this looks like a good place um a a small family there's an elderly woman named sarah boyd and her granddaughter who is an infant baby um and a man named charles moore who is a fur dealer in the area he somehow this 14 year old obviously has got guns so it can't be that hard but he kills the woman Kills the baby, and trigger warning, he does this by beating the baby in the head with a rock. The fuck? Yes. So, that's cool. And then he kills the dude. So, later on, after he killed them, and he obviously is caught, uh, 
he was eventually asked, like, why he murdered this family. And he said it, he murdered the woman because she wouldn't give him food. He killed the baby because it started crying. And then he killed the man because he was afraid that the man would go home and tell him to do his chores. If that doesn't scream uh, maturity. I don't know what does. So anyways, he murders that family and then police are like looking for him because he's a missing 14 year old to their eyes right now. And they end up finding his um, Arnold's white cap near Charles's dead body, the man he just murdered. So <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Yeah. <laughs> so now they're looking for him for a different reason. And he ends up holding up another household. There's a farmer named Ira Robinette um, who ended up stumbling upon Arnold and then is like put a gun in his face and he's like i need a uh, food and a place to stay and i was like okay cool you can stay over here this is fine everything's fine and then once arnold falls asleep he um ira gets his brother to go get the authorities it's the 20s so the farmers so you literally have to like run there he had a mule <laughs> he got on his mule and he <laughs> went to the authorities which were eight miles away on a mule. Oh my god. Yeah. Uh, it took a while. He's like, don't go anywhere. Yeah, we'll be right back. <laughs> he was asleep, so it's fine. The farmer's brother did end up getting the sheriff and like his posse, which I'm assuming are other deputies. I don't know. Maybe his friends who knows but they returned at like four in the morning and even though arnold had like all these weapons and he's a crazy killer at this point law enforcement shined a flashlight in his eyes and he's like okay you got me <laughs> jig is up and he even started calling himself arnie the kid so okay yes he was arrested and a committee of doctors found arnold to be sane um, Arnold's father, however, disagrees. His father's name is John W. Comer. He wrote a letter to the editors of the Baxter Bulletin saying, quote, I know he was far from normal, end quote. Whoa. What was normal, though? What's normal? Also, like, tell me doctors in the 20s are going to tell you about mental health diagnosis. Literally. No, they're going to be like, this 14-year-old's just acting like a 14-year-old. Uh, yes. So Ooh, Arnold... Babies to babies arnold was sentenced to 21 years in prison he was obviously a model inmate like everybody else was and he on january 12th 1933 grabbed a window weight and battered his cellmate's head in model he's like well i did inmate. it to the baby first and yeah he's like I, so I can do this yes um uh, but from then on he was put in solitary confinement good yes so the comer family was just like okay we need to start fresh like gotta cut her losses let's just abandon the kid and move to oklahoma because that's what everybody does just forget your problems and move um but they didn't get what they wanted they didn't get that fresh start because they had another son and his name is chester or was probably was at this point um I don't know how old Chester was, but I feel like he was at least a, a young adult. And he ends up marrying a 17-year-old woman. 17. I guess she's not a woman. She's a girl. 17-year-old girl. Elizabeth Childers on Valentine's Day, 1934. Cute. Super cute. But four... However. Yeah, but uh, four months after their marriage, she disappeared. Mm. Yeah. And to everyone's surprise, she literally never returned uh chester moved on just eight months later and remarried a woman named lucille stevens who was also 17 um in july 1935 and she disappeared two months after okay 
Dun, dun, dun. Um, so then November 19th, 1935, a man named Ray Evans, who is a prominent attorney at Shawnee, Oklahoma, went on a business trip and disappeared. Uh, a gas station attendant was the last to see Ray, and the attendant noticed that there was a man who looked like a hitchhiker, so probably, like, not, like, the cleanest clothes or whatever the hitchhiker looks like. Um, he saw this person in the passenger seat of Ray's tan Ford sedan. Uh, Ray was known for offering rides to hitchhikers, which, if this doesn't scream the first rule of what not to do mm -hmm. to not get murdered, mm -hmm. don't pick up hitchhikers. Um, the next day, on November 20th, Chester shows up at Lucille's family home in Maysville, Oklahoma. Remember, Lucille is missing. And so Lucille's dad, Charles Stevens, is like, where's my daughter? And... Chester's like, oh, shoot, you know, she ran off to Oklahoma City. I was going to go after her, but I have, I, I just wanted to stop here first. Mm -hmm. And they notice that he's driving a tan Ford sedan, the same one that Ray was driving when he was last seen. Interesting. Yes. So Chester's like, okay, I'm going to go to Oklahoma City, but first I need to go to the grocery store. And in order to go to the grocery store, I need... My wife's younger sister, Elizabeth, who's 13, to come with me. So they get on the road because Elizabeth is like, la di da di da like, mm -hmm. my brother-in-law's going to take me for a fun ride to the grocery store. Maybe he promised her candy. I don't know. Right. Um, but he ends up holding her hostage. And she was obviously terrified, so much so that she tried to jump out of a moving vehicle. Good Lord. And by doing so, Chester tried to stop her. And crashed the car into a ditch. Oh, no. Thankfully, she was not injured, so she was able to run away and go back home. So she returns back home, and their family calls the police, and they arrive on scene, and they see the accident, and they see the vehicle, and they're like, oh, shit, we are confirming this right now via whatever right. technology we have in the 30s. Mm-hmm. Or was it the 20s? Fuck. The 30s. Um, That this is Ray Evans's... Ev I'm sorry, Ray Evans' vehicle. So they're like, cool, 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 where's Chester? Well, he's <laughs> gone, obviously. On November 25th, a few days later, an oil field worker near Blanchard spotted a man that fits Chester's description, and he called the local marshal, Oscar Morgan. So Oscar Morgan gets to this scene, and he ends up catching up to Chester, and Chester leads him through this high-speed chase, and it, ugh, Chester's not a very good driver, and he crashes again in the embankment. So apparently somehow he has a gun. He got a gun somewhere along the way. Good. Yeah. And he ends up shooting the marshal in the shoulder, but the marshal's like, no. And he ends up shooting. <laughs> <laughs> not doing that today. Yeah, he returns fire, and he shoots the windshield into Chester's forehead. Jeez. So if that doesn't scream... Good aim. I don't know what does. Yeah. Um, so he's taken to Oklahoma City Hospital, and he, as he's going, is mumbling about bodies, piles of bodies. My God. So weird. Um, doctors are obviously, unfortunately, trying to keep him alive, and detectives and his family and, like, literally everybody, because it was the 30s, are, like, crowding around his bed being like, what happened? Tell me what happened. Blah, blah, blah. And no, he's not talking to anybody. Um 
So on November 27th, he died without offering any useful information, though Murderpedia did say that Chester did confess to, quote, doing away with some of his victims, though he offered no explanation. Good. Yes. So let's talk about his victims, because I only talked about, like, three. So shortly after his death, the bodies of five people who were last seen going somewhere with him were identified. Um, One was a pregnant woman who was discovered on a road near Kansas City, Kansas, October 1934. She remained a mystery until she was positively identified as Chester's first wife, Elizabeth. She was apparently shot several times and often described by the two sources that I have as being riddled with bullets. Oh, good. Yes. Um, so Ray Evans, he his body was found nude and in a field near Shawnee, Oklahoma, which is where he went missing from. So he didn't go very far. Um, uh, there are also bodies of farmer L.A. Simpson and his son Warren um, that were found in the same area. So that's four right now. And then the charred skeletal remains of Comer's second wife, uh, Chester's second wife, Lucille, was found in the countryside of Edmond, Oklahoma. So he burned her. So that's fucked up. Um, Various motives have been proposed as to why Chester did these crimes. Most of them included greed, jealousy, especially when it came to his two wives. Um, Carrie Comer, the mother of these two psycho killer sons, refused to believe that they were killers. Finally, though, she accepted it by telling a reporter that Chester was the, quote, second son in the family to go bad, end quote. I know that was a very short little story, but if you want to read more about it, there's a book called Famous Crimes the World Forgot by Lucky Morrow, and it it covers these murders. So, super, it's just really short and sweet. I couldn't really find a whole lot about it, but... This is what Random City Generator offered for us Good this job. time around. So I liked it. Yeah. Good job. It was like 10 minutes. I'm so sorry. No, you're fine. Okay. Don't apologize. That's silly. So silly. Good job. Thanks. That's nuts. Yeah, imagine. imagine like giving birth to multiple children and more than one of them becoming a murderer. No. And so like makes <laughs> me think like the 14 year old obviously lost cause, but like did Chester learned from Arnold and was just like, you know what? If I can just kill and get away with it, mm-hmm. whatever. Who knows? Maybe he killed more people and just never got found because yeah. some of them weren't connected to him until their bodies got found. And then they were like, oh. Well, back in that time, like the odds of successfully connecting every single murder to the correct person were yeah, no way. And especially when like his first wife was murdered in Kansas City. Uh-huh. Like... Yeah. Crossing lines there, bud. Yep. Well, well that's good it. Good job. Thanks. Do you have anything else? No. Great. Tingle ombre, but that's it. Okay. Well, um, you can find us on Instagram. 10 out of 10 recommend that because in our bio, there's a link tree and you can find everything else. But if you're not on Instagram, you can email us at whonewpodcast666 at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Patreon, where you can get episodes early and other goodies. So Other goodies. <laughs> yes. Have fun. Stay safe. Don't pick up hitchhikers. <laughs>